Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 4 in the Argentinian military junta invasion version 4.0 has been dusted off as the Buenos Aires administration revisits an early 1960s plan. As you heard last episode, Admiral Jorge Anaya had begun to plan an invasion of the Falklands by 1979, shortly after Argentina won the Soccer World Cup of 1978. Anaya had been Commander-in-Chief of the Argentine Navy and a member of the military junta that controlled the country since 1976. But by far the most important player in the saga was General Leopoldo Galtieri, who became Presidente shortly before Anaya was installed as Navy Chief. Incumbent President at the time, though, was Roberto Viola, and his health was deteriorating. One of the more hawkish members of the Argentinian government was Admiral Anaya, who was also the longest-serving member of the Junta, and some suggest he made the recovery of the Falklands a condition of his support for Galtieri as president. Other military leaders say this was a fallacy. In fact, it was the other way around, that both Anaya and Air Force member of the Junta, Brigadier Lami Dozo, were approached by Galtieri to select a choice military project. This was not necessarily the Malvinas, but history will show that whatever the initial idea was, the islands were at the heart of propaganda campaigns. And the military junta was in a bit of a rush. The top of the list for their foreign policy at the time was the resolution of what they called the Malvinas problem. And of course, without the Navy's full support, there would be no resolution one way or the other. Anaya's character was crucial in what was to come. He was described as solitary, severe, self-disciplined, and an old school friend of Galtieri's. In a military dictatorship that was riven by internal bickering and feuds, the two friends would hold together through the next few years, and the war would test the result. The Admiral, however, was to set in motion an unstoppable train that would lead inevitably to war. But it must be stressed that the Argentinians saw armed conflict as a backup to forceful diplomatic initiatives, which were the first option. Failing that, it set a date for the recovery of the Malvinas, which was before January 1983, which would be commemorated as the 150th anniversary of the removal of the Argentine governor and the seizing of the Falklands by the Royal Navy, followed by British settlement. While London was hardly to make a big noise about this in January 1983, for Buenos Aires it was another matter entirely. And so the Junta determined that 1982 was going to be what they called the Year of the Malvinas. There was another significant event, however, before that year, and this was the arrival on the international scene of someone called Margaret Thatcher. In May 1979, Labour was booted from power. While this initially led to more of the same when it came to the perception of the Falklands inside Whitehall by government technocrats, even Thatcher did not regard the islands as of great interest, at least at first. Her administration nominated Nicholas Ridley to take over from Ted Rowlands and the new Foreign Office functionary headed off for what was called a familiarization tour of his new territory in Latin America. He initially visited Buenos Aires, then Port Stanley, and by the time he returned to London, he was even more concerned about the situation than his predecessors. If you remember, the big issue at the time wasn't the Falklands, it was Hong Kong. He settled on a scheme for a leaseback in the style of Hong Kong where Argentina could be given a time frame for the return of sovereignty, perhaps 99 years. In June 1980, an Argentinian delegation met Margaret Thatcher and afterwards both sides said there was a light on the horizon. Ridley headed back to the Falklands in November 1980 and quickly came to the point at a series of meetings with the islanders. 
He said a leaseback was the only reasonable option and warned them that the islands could not be defended. He also said if they rejected the latest scheme, they would bear the consequences. The governor at the time was Rex Hunt, and he felt that the comment had jolted the islanders into realizing they couldn't carry on forever, but others were unmoved. When Ridley flew out of Port Stanley on November 29th, my wedding anniversary by the way, a group of islanders placed a wreath around a map of the Falklands while a PA blared tunes such as This land is our land, we shall not be moved, and that rhythmic hip shaker, land of hope and glory. It was an imperialistic disco sans smoke machine and mirror ball. This trip, however, was going to lead to what some say was the worst savaging in the British Commons ever received by a government official. Ridley made a brief statement on December 2nd addressing the Commons, saying the leaseback solution was being considered. For the next 90 minutes after that, 18 MPs from the left of the Labour Party to the right of the Conservatives jumped on Ridley like a pack of dogs on a three-legged cat. Tory Julian Amory, former foreign minister, said the idea was profoundly disturbing. Liberal Russell Johnson spoke about shameful schemes for getting rid of these islands, while Labour Party's Tom McNally yelled about humiliating excursions to the Argentinians. While Ridley was being mauled like an all-black flank under a springbok scrum, no government minister rose to defend him, not even Thatcher. And yes, she had already received an intelligence report which forecast pretty much what was going to happen. There was a meeting held on June 30th in 1981 where Hunt, Ridley and other senior officials met to scenario plan and were provided with what turned out to be an accurate intelligence estimate. First, the United Nations would Britain bash for bad faith. Then the Argentinians would institute some kind of air and sea embargo, while action against British interests in Argentina would also begin. There would be increased harassment of foreign trawlers using Port Stanley by the Argentinian Navy. Then there would be a landing on South Georgia. Then what they called pinprick incidents could take place like mini landings on the main islands and others. An uninhabited island would be invaded and occupied, then finally a full-scale invasion of the Falklands. The meeting also concluded that Argentina would probably occupy the Falklands before the 150th anniversary of the British occupation, which I said was due in 1983. So, this intelligence report was incredibly accurate. Reading the outline of these processes now, it's easy to adopt the history as hindsight methodology. We're doing the same at the moment with regard to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, aren't we? Anyway, after this major meeting, Lord Carrington was instructed to discontinue the attempts at pressurizing the islanders into accepting leaseback, and he found himself under intense backbencher pressure anyway. And so the British did what they've done so well before other wars, which was to fiddle, twiddle, look the other way, pontificate, remonstrate, and then try to ameliorate. It was precisely at this point that the Foreign Office was hit by decisions taken by other government departments which weakened any bargaining position the British thought they may have had. Despite shock and protests by Carrington and Ridley, the Minister of Defence pushed through a plan to withdraw the Antarctic supply ship Endurance from the South Atlantic. This, of course, is not to be confused with the first Endurance, Sir Ernest Shackleton's famous ship, which has just been found off the coast of Antarctica more than a century after it sank. 
So Carrington warned the Defence Secretary John Knott in writing that this withdrawing of the endurance would be taken as a clear sign by the Argentinians of Britain's decision to let go of the Falklands. But the Ministry of Defence was adamant. Endurance was on the A-list of things to be cut, and the MOD was convinced it would have no strategic effect, which is a bit like saying cutting off your arm won't make you fight any worse. Remember, folks, the public spending climate in the UK by the end of 1981 was pretty much a crisis. When the announcement was made about the return of the endurance, an Argentinian official rang Lord Shackleton Jr., who we met last episode, to ask if this was the sign that London had formally given up on the Falklands. Give Carrington some credit, he was to resign partly over this decision. Hong Kong entered the equation now. The British Nationality Bill was before Parliament sponsored by the Home Office and intended to clarify the rights of British colonial citizens in Hong Kong. It was basically a bill that would stop large numbers of Chinese emigrating to Britain, but at the same time protecting white colonials of British descent. At least one grandparent had to have been born in Britain. Shame the poor Falklanders. This did not cover third and fourth generation settlers in colonies such as the Falklands and Gibraltar. That was Britain's most valued security, which had just been ripped out from under their feet. After a significant political back and forth, Hong Kong would remain a special case, while Gibraltans would receive full citizenship, but not Falklanders. Half a loaf is better than none, thought the parliamentarians, swigging their gins and patting themselves on the back. Gibraltarians were ecstatic, while a third of the Falklands, 800 of them, were dumbstruck. They were now going to be treated like Hong Kong Chinese. While all of these somewhat random lunatic decisions were being swatted about amongst the British political class, the Argentinian military class was taking copious notes. The old game of Falklands watching was renewed with a feverish fervour in Buenos Aires, along with the dusty old map I spoke about earlier. Sitting in his Buenos Aires office, 55-year-old President Leopoldo Fortunato Galtieri sipped on his whiskey. From a humble background as the second child of a poor Italian immigrant family living in a dreary part of Buenos Aires, he'd risen to the highest office in Argentina, El Presidente de la Nación. He'd brought a kind of rugged, relaxed look to the job, photographed in shirt sleeves behind his desk at the office in the Casa Rosada, self-confident and impressive. The Americans were to fall over themselves, I'm afraid, despite the fact that up to 18,000 Argentinians had disappeared as the Junta's torture machines went into full gear. But of course, it was Ronald Reagan's presidency, and he didn't mind overlooking a few obvious human rights glitches. The communists were seizing South American states left and, well, left, and Washington was prepared to be myopic about a few long-haired students being raped and murdered and thrown bound and alive out of helicopters into the sea. At least Argentinians weren't communist, was the political raison d'etre in Washington. Galtieri was a soldier's soldier. When he visited the United States, gushing media said he looked like George S. Patton, or at least he looked like George C. Scott, who played George S. Patton in a bio-flick. The Junta was responding to leftist terror attacks which brutalized the population in Argentina, including kidnappings, bombings and murders, so the Argentinian military decided to fight fire with fire. 
This turned into a period which became known as La Guerra Sucia, the Dirty War. Forgive my Spanish pronunciation, folks. Instead of trials, such as the one Nelson Mandela received in South Africa, the Argentinians decided on the swifter route of disappearance. Covert operations conducted by groups of men driving about in Ford Falcons would bundle unfortunate victims into their car and head off, usually to the Navy's neoclassical building in Buenos Aires, the School of Mechanics. There, Captain Alfredo Astiz laid about himself with electric cable and hammer. A debonair naval officer, Captain Astiz was going to play a significant role in the Falklands drama, as you're going to hear. A French nun who was raped and tortured by Astiz's men refused to give up her secrets, thinking she was protecting a young blonde protester, but the man was actually Astiz in disguise, calling himself Muchachito Rubio, and who'd organized a public gathering only to have all those who attended arrested, including the nun. Most were murdered. An agent provocateur. Thousands of youngsters, including school children, were tortured and murdered. 100 journalists vanished, along with 200 scientists. But like the Uyghurs of China. Later, Galtieri was to wave this all away with a flippant remark that, in any war there are people who disappear. Ronald Reagan invited Galtieri's political elite to the USA. The Humphrey Kennedy sanctions against Argentina for human rights abuses were lifted. Galtieri visited the US twice in 1981 and was spotted in Hollywood and Disneyland. He was an anti-communist and Reagan loved him. All the fawning led to Galtieri coming to the false conclusion that he was a military superstar and that Washington would probably support his claim to sovereignty over the Malvinas. The situation in Central America was deteriorating and the United States didn't want to send troops to places like Honduras or El Salvador or Nicaragua. The very mention of leftist guerrillas and the word jungle made even Republicans shiver under their Stetsons. Vietnam was still very fresh in everyone's minds. Dirty work needed being done and General Galtieri stepped forward into the limelight, agreeing to send troops to help out. 500 Argentinians were already operating out of the Honduras on sabotage raids into Nicaragua. President Viola had decided to help the Americans already, but he was growing more nervous that his people really did want democracy. By now, the Argentinian army had a great deal to answer for. On November 9, 1981, Argentina was told that Viola was suffering from ill health. The de facto administration of the country was in the hands of the commander-in-chief of the three armed forces. Galtieri was one of the three. A corps of senior commanders was below them, and these had to be part of any consensus. And this corps then relied on their junior officers' support. It was a monster to manage as it ripped at its own social fabric. Maintaining this cumbersome system meant a lot of complex time-wasting. While the head of the Navy, Admiral Anaya, was pretty safe from internal machinations, Galtieri was not. After being ushered in as the new Presidente, he had until 1984 to make his mark and he needed a quick success. He had inherited an inflation rate of 150%. Political revolt was everywhere. The dirty war was ongoing, albeit by now most leftists had been killed or suppressed. What Galtieri and his demon Junta feared more than the British was democracy. 
A civilian system would lead to probes into murders, justice for the victims. So like all dictatorships, the ruling elite was locked into an ever-increasing cycle of violence. They could not lose power, or they'd face prison, or being shot and strung up by their feet in a town square like Mussolini. Galtieri wanted a big bang, a spectacular achievement to detract from all these problems. But 1982 began badly for him. A timetable was drawn up for the reconstitution of political parties and elections in Argentina. The rank-and-file Argentinian was suffering the effects of economic degradation. The unions hated him and his government. In March 1982, a trade union demonstration in the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires was broken up by the police. 2,000 were detained and hundreds injured. The urbane murderer gathered himself to himself in the Casa Rosada and called in Admiral Anaya and other trusted senior officers. He had now concluded that the Malvinas should be taken before December 1982. It just so happened that in December of the previous year, 1981, Something momentous had taken place on a remote island of South Georgia, and it involved scrap metal pickers. They had been engaged in surveying the island and conducting reconnaissance of an abandoned whaling station. They travelled back to Buenos Aires by the new year, January 1982, with a plan to return. Rear Admiral Gualta Alara, who was the commander-in-chief, would soon be drawn into the project to invade the Falklands, said at the time the plan to invade was only a contingency plan. Then the South Georgian event happened. Speaking to journalists after the war, he explained that the mood was dictated by the lack of progress on negotiations. The Argentinian Navy in particular believed that more than words should be deployed, but at first the real plan was tentative talks. Vice Admiral Juan Lombardo was the new chief of operations. He'd been installed in a routine ceremony in December 1981. After the ceremony, Lombardo was taken aside by Admiral Anaya, who told him to prepare a plan to occupy the Falklands and to take them but not necessarily keep them. It was a brief conversation, as some of the most important tend to be muy importante. Back in Puerto Belgrana, Vice Admiral Lombardo thought it was important to seek clarification of his orders. It was clear as he discussed the plan with Anaya that the idea was to take the islands, then voluntarily withdraw and forced the British back to the negotiating table. There was utmost secrecy. Only three other senior officers knew about this at the time. Alara, Busse of the Marines, and Garcia Boll of the Naval Air Arm all were close to Lombardo at Puerto Belgrano. Lombardo was alarmed and said that General Garcia of the Army should be included in any planning, but Admiral Anaya disagreed. He repeated it was a Navy task to take the Malvinas and what happened next was for the joint command of the Junta to decide. Then came the comment that doomed everyone, because Anaya said he didn't think there would be a military reaction by the British. Their decision to remove the endurance and public pronouncements about cutting the defense budget didn't help. Secrecy was obviously paramount. Just one nuclear-powered submarine in the South Atlantic could wreck their plans. But it was impossible to plan this attack on the Falklands without the arms of other services. So, in mid-January 1982, the Commission de Trabajo, a working party, held its first meeting at Army Headquarters in the Liberatado building in Buenos Aires. The three members were Vice Admiral Lombardo, General Osvaldo Garcia of the Army, and Brigadier General Sigfrido Plessel of the Air Force. General Garcia was very important. 
He was commander of the 5th Corps with headquarters in Bahia Blanca, not far from the naval base at Puerto Belgrano. His units covered the whole of southern Argentina, and he was involved in the early plans to take the Falklands. By setting up their training and operations far south of Buenos Aires, secrecy could be assured. Admiral Anaya's initial idea to take the islands but not to defend them was abandoned pretty quickly. Instead, it was decided that there would be a period of permanent garrisoning by the Argentinian troops while administrators would work out how to reintegrate the islands into the homeland at around the point of the 150th anniversary of their loss. A date of 15 September was jotted down for the completion of the planning. It was spring then, the worst of the midwinter weather would have been over. HMS Endurance, the British Antarctic patrol vessel, would also have been withdrawn by then. Just in case the British did decide to fight, the Naval Air Arms Main Strike Unit was equipped with 14 French-built Super Etendard aircraft and 15 Exocet anti-ship missiles. It was these Exocets that were going to wreak havoc in the war. By the third week of February 1982, the basic landing plan was complete. The main landings would be carried out by the Navy and their Marines. A small army contingent would be carried with the landing force, and a full regiment of infantry would take over as soon as the Royal Marines on the Falklands had been defeated. The Argentine Air Force, it was believed, would only be asked for a few transport aircraft. The 2nd Marine Infantry Battalion was chosen to form the main landing force, and they began practicing on a stretch of coast on the Valdez Peninsula in Patagonia. It was a beach that resembled the landing beach on the coast near the town of Stanley, and it also had a network of tracks similar to those linking the beach with the airport at Stanley and the town. Only three officers from the battalion knew why the men were training there. Meanwhile, the best witnesses to the start of the Falklands War were in the South Atlantic and having a major misadventure. Three young Frenchmen named Serge Briet, Olivier Gouin and Michel Roger were on board the 40-foot yacht the Saint-Garpoux heading to the Antarctic where Briet was going to film a documentary. But on March the 5th off Cape Horn, the very southern tip of Argentina, the winds gusted at more than 90 miles an hour and rolled their yacht right over, smashing the wheelhouse, part of the mast and the tiller. Then they were swept 1,300 miles into the South Atlantic. By some merciful miracle, they found themselves in sight of South Georgia and managed to land there at the harbour of Griffiken. They found 30 members of the British Antarctic Survey conducting biological, ionospheric and meteorological studies on the islands. These men were not happy to see the Frenchmen offering neither help nor food. So the Frenchmen helped themselves to 20-year-old tins of carrots and potatoes at a nearby abandoned whaling station instead. Luckily, Briere's camera was still working because the French film crew were about to witness things heating up. On March 19, 1982, four of the British scientists on a routine field trip to Leith, about 20 miles up the coast from Griekwiken, radioed that an Argentinian Navy fleet auxiliary called the Bahia Buen Suchezo was anchored in the Leith Bay. There were about 50 men, some in paramilitary gear, offloading supplies. An Argentinian flag was fluttering from an abandoned tower. The four approached the captain in command and told him he was conducting an illegal gathering, that he was shooting the reindeer on the island without permission as well. The captain claimed he had a letter from the British Foreign Office which gave him permission, but then he couldn't produce the letter. By tradition, legal authority on South Georgia was vested in the base commander at Griekwiken, who was also postmaster, customs master, harbour master, receiver of wrecks, registrar and magistrate. The current magistrate was Steve Martin, 
who radioed to his immediate superiors that the Argentinians had stuck a flag into South Georgia. The diplomatic to and fro began to escalate. Enter Constantino Davidoff, an Argentine businessman, who had asked the Edinburgh-based firm of Christian Salveson in 1977 whether it would sell the scrap metal in four abandoned whaling stations in South Georgia to him. They said they would. By 1979, he had signed an agreement, and Senor Davidoff paid £100,000 for the rights to remove material before the end of March 1982. He had only managed to leave Buenos Aires in March 1982 to collect the scrap, but he had to check in at Grytviken first for permission from the all-powerful Steve Martin before salvaging at Leith and two other places called Husvik and Stromness. But he never did seek permission. When he had visited South Georgia in 1981 to carry out a recon mission for his scrap metal, he avoided the British at Kritviken. The British embassy got to hear about it and slapped him on the wrist, reminding Senor Davidoff that next time he must stop off at Commander Steve Martin's Kritviken shack. Davidoff chartered the Bahia Buen Suceso, which was a transport ship of 5,000 tons, which duly sailed from Buenos Aires on the 11th of March 1982 with 81 men on board. This was a vessel owned by the Argentinian Navy and now chartered by a businessman. Around 40 crew were mercantile marines, not Navy personnel, along with 41 civilian workers. Senor Davidoff didn't actually sail with them but told his shipmaster Osvaldo Niela to check in with the British. Because they took so long to unload the ship at Stromness Bay, Niela delayed informing Steve Martin of their arrival. The British magistrate then informed Rex Hunt, Falklands governor, of the infringement. Hunt replied on the 20th of March and said Martin should tell the Argentinians to lower their flag and report to Kritviken immediately. The Argentinians duly lowered their flag, but then studiously avoided sailing to visit Steve Martin. The next day, all of Senor Davidoff's equipment had been unloaded. The Bahia Buen Suceso departed for Ushai, a tiny town in the tip of the mainland, where they were to drop off supplies before heading back to Buenos Aires, leaving the workers on South Georgia. Of course, intense diplomatic activity then broke out, which you're going to hear about next episode, as well as the start of the invasion. The theme to this series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Thanks, Kevin, for letting me use your music. Please rate the podcast on iTunes, or you can email me from the website abwarpodcast.com. You can also direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.